everyone. Great to see you all. Uh, lots of familiar faces, lots of new faces. And man, what a, what a privilege it is to study God's Word, to be here together every time I do this. It's just one of the best things that we get to do. Uh, I know it's with a lot of um, kind of heavy hearts and humility as we process what we just talked about. Um, but believe it or not, our passage tonight is only going to get worse. <laughs> uh, it's, we have some heavy passages, some heavy texts that we're going to go through tonight. And so if you have been with Valley for a while, or maybe this is your first night, you may know that since 2019, we have been teaching through the book of Matthew. And it is 2023. And believe it or not, we are at the end of the, the text, the end of the book. And I think it is quite remarkable that we are heading into you know, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, and our text is lining up exactly where we are at in Matthew with the calendar. And we didn't do that on purpose. No idea, we had no idea when we started in October of 2019 that we would be here today um, heading into some of the hardest parts of watching Jesus go to the cross as we actually get to remember these dates and experience them together. So, uh, we're still a week out. Happy Palm Sunday, everyone. Uh, tonight, we are not talking about the triumphal entry, but rather the few passages that are just right before Jesus um, is to be crucified. So we have three big passages that we are going to work through, three big chunks. The first is the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin, and then Peter's denial of Jesus, and then Judas's remorse and death. So we'll take it one at a time, but each has its own weight of darkness to it uh, as it just surrounds leading up to Jesus's death. I think it's appropriate that we kind of feel the weight tonight as we head into even this Friday, as we feel the weight of him actually being crucified before we can really feel the celebration of Resurrection Sunday. It's easy to go too quick to Resurrection Sunday without feeling the weight of what it really meant before we get there. So before we dive in, please bow your heads and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for this beautiful story before us. We thank you that you have revealed yourself in this text. So Father, I ask that we can see you, your spirit can lead us, guide us, convict us, illuminate this text for us. I pray tonight that we are changed. I pray that we interact with you, Father, that we don't let tonight go by and just it being another church service where we just go through the motions, but Father, we take the time to pause. We take the time to sit in the text. We take the time to let you move us. So we surrender ourselves to you tonight, Lord. We know that you are capable of it. Be with us in your name, amen. All right, so our first chunk of the night. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you. Tonight is one of those nights you're gonna to wanna to have your Bible because we're gonna read a lot of text. It will be on the screen, but there are Bibles in front of you if you wanna grab it in front of you. And we're gonna be in Matthew chapter 26 and the beginning of chapter 27. So we're gonna start with the first few verses of our text tonight, which is the trial of Jesus. Starting in verse 57. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. 
Now, so far, we already know Jesus has had his final Passover meal with his disciples. He's gone into Gethsemane to pray. He has been betrayed by Judas with a kiss. And the chief priests have arrested him. And the disciples have fled from the garden. So now, this is the, uh, the Jews now grabbing Jesus, seizing him, and leading him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Picking up again in verse 58. But Peter was following him along at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so they might put him to death. So let's pause right there. So we have this trial, these people, these groups of people, so I just wanna break it down a little bit because it is a little confusing to understand the role of the Jewish leaders and the role of the Roman leaders. So as you know, the Jews are under Roman rule. So if the Romans were in charge of the Jews, their laws and their courts were at play. What Rome said says is what Rome goes. What Rome says goes. And while the Romans conquered, anytime they conquered a country, they still tried to allow the people to maintain whatever rules and jurisdictions that they had, just so it was kind of an easy transfer of power. But ultimately, when it came down to it, Rome was the one who was in charge of any big decision, decisions here. So the Jews are seeing Jesus as guilty. They're saying he committed specifically a religious crime. They're saying he's claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and he's a blasphemer. But the problem is this is just a religious crime. The Jews don't have the ability to crucify Jesus, only the Romans do. So the Romans were actually the only ones with this power, and the Romans at this point don't really see it as a crime. What they would be, what would be considered a crime for the Romans is if Jesus tried to establish himself as a king to overthrow Caesar. But at this point, Rome's kind of like, they're doing their thing. I don't really care. <laughs> I don't care what this Jesus guy is claiming to do. And you, you know, priests take care of whoever this Jesus guy is. That's not of concern for us. So while uh, on Friday, our passage will cover when they actually do go to Pilate and they go to Rome. Tonight's passage, we're focusing on how the Jews are, what the trial with the Jews are with Jesus. So they are hoping that they can claim, yes, Jesus, you made these, you committed these crimes, you blasphemed, so that then we can go to Rome and say, hey, Jesus committed these crimes, now crucify him. And they certainly were not content with a small sentence. And that's why they weren't allowed to handle that conflict themselves. It was much larger, a much larger issue than just slapping Jesus on the wrist. They're going for his death. And that's where they need the Romans to do that. So this trial was before the Sanhedrin, the scribes and the elders and the chief priests. These are the political council of the Jews. They're the highest legislative body. They're the grand jury for determining any sort of important case. And then we also have Peter, who was listening at a distance, which will come into play later. And then we have Caiaphas, who's the head of the Sanhedrin. So it's just important to remember that at this point, political and religious matters were one and the same. It's difficult for us to understand this because we live in a separation of church and state. And while some still argue, well, that didn't really stick and there's still some, some crossover, in our minds, in a very modern, at least Western 
perspective, there is a separation of church and state. But here, there's actually not really an instance where anyone would consider that there ever would be a separation of church and state. So if Israel, if you broke a law in the Torah, that was a spiritual and a political mistake. There are consequences um, across the board for this, where we would really separate those two. You know, there's like a spiritual problem, there's religious, and then there's a um, other political problem. So, as the Jews are trying to hold this trial, it's a little uncertain if this trial was any sort of official trial. Uh, some people believe it was kind of like under the table because nothing was really done to the book. So they, for instance, uh, this trial, you're not supposed to hold a trial the day before the Sabbath because if someone was convicted, you would have to convict them the next day, which would have been on the Sabbath. So strike one, this trial that they're holding, they've already broken the Hebrew law. Second, they are bringing in people who are bringing in false testimony. According to Hebrew law, you cannot bear false witness. Strike two, more breaking of the Hebrew law. And third, they were claiming that Jesus was blaspheming. And that definition of what Jesus blaspheming means, it's a little uncertain, um, but ultimately a blaspheming God's name is using the name Yahweh or using I am. So this is, think back to Exodus and Moses at the burning bush when he's talking to God through the burning bush and he says, who do you say, who do I tell the people that who you are? And he says, I am, which is translated Yahweh. And even in our Bible translations, we don't see the word Yahweh. You're not gonna see it in any of your Bibles. Anytime you see the word Lord with an uppercase L but lowercase O-R-D, that is just meaning master or some, some sort of Lord over other people. But if you see the all capital letters, L-O-R-D, that's actually Yahweh. That's Yahweh's name. But you're not supposed to use Yahweh's name. That would be blaspheming him. But Jesus never actually used Yahweh's name. He never used his name in vain. So this grounds for blaspheming was very weak. So it's ironic that they're trying to put Jesus to death for breaking the law while they themselves were breaking the law. Okay, we continue on. Verse 59. So again, the chief priests, the whole council, they were trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so they might put him to death but they did not find any. Even though many false witnesses came forward, but later on two came forward and said, well, this man stated, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the chief priests, well, they say, stand up, they say to Jesus, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. He's kind of like, you're the one who said it, not me. <laughs> Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, if you have been with us through Matthew, this is actually the second time Jesus has quoted this passage. Just in chapter 25, Luckily enough, I taught on this passage, so I'm sure you all remember when I taught on this passage, uh, which Jesus is quoting Daniel 7, which is a description of what would happen on Judgment Day when he separated the sheep from the goats. And he's describing this Daniel 7 image as this description of the Son of Man being presented to the Ancient of Days, which we know is the Son being presented to the Father in glory. 
So when Jesus is quoting this, Daniel 7 again, this is a messianic claim of his. He is saying, I am the son of man, and I will be glorified and presented to the Father. And again, more irony is that they don't even know that in just three days, at least in part, this prophecy will come to fruition because he will die and he will ascend and he will sit down at the right hand of the Father in glory. But again, it's important to note, it wasn't blasphemous for Jesus to claim to be the Messiah. However, his claim, him using this passage, Daniel 7, was just a very intimate claim of kinship with the Father. He's really, he's toeing the line in terms of what they're comfortable with. They're trying to catch Jesus and say, you're not the Messiah. And that was all Caiaphas needed. And so even though no blaspheming had occurred, Caiaphas decided, I'm going to tell these people, see, you have seen for yourself that this Jesus is not the person that we want and he needs to be taken down. So in verse 65, when the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed, what further do we need to have of witness? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? The people answered, he deserves death. And they spat in his face and beat him with their fists and others slapped him. And they said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it the one that hit you? This is very strange. Um, Historically, no matter how guilty a prisoner was, there would be no reason for spitting or beating or slapping the prisoner. This mockery and demanding of Jesus to prophesy just goes to show just the absolute dishonor and disrespect that the Jews were giving him. They want to belittle him and discredit him in whatever way possible. All right, first passage done. Feeling good, right? All right, Peter. Peter's our next passage. Um, Like I said, the story gets worse. Okay, Peter, starting in verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside the courtyard. So he's been watching all this go down, but he's at a distance. No one had really, it seems like at some level he was able to get close into the courtyard, whatever that looked like or meant, and no one had stopped him. But Peter was sitting outside the courtyard and a servant girl came to him and said, you too were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it. He said, I do not know what you are talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know this man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So we have our three denials of Peter. The first one is just a servant girl. It's not even an accusation, actually. It's just an observation. And I think we're supposed to kind of feel the innocence of the, of the statement, not even the question, that you two were with Jesus, the Galilean. And Peter, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, I mean, clearly the, the statement, there was no uncertainty in the statement. It was a very clear statement, but he's, he's avoiding it. He doesn't even want to acknowledge it. The second denial, 
Again, no accusation of a crime, just an observation. Another servant girl, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And this time he says, I do not know the man. This time Peter took it a lot further. He didn't just avoid the subject. And he didn't even say, no, I wasn't with Jesus. He says, I do not even know him. This is a much, much greater statement, offensive statement, hurtful statement than just, I wasn't with him. And then the third accusation, the third denial, a little while later, some bystanders, surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. And this comment is spoken with some confidence, surely, no, surely you are with him. And it must have been something in how Peter spoke and his accent, the language that he used, that just gave away that he was associated with Jesus. And Peter really seems to be rattled by this final accusation. And this response is much more aggravated than the first two. He begins to curse and swear. He is clearly rejecting Jesus here. He wants to make sure that everyone around him knows that he has no knowledge of Jesus whatsoever. He repeats his last comment, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crows. Luke's gospel tells us that in this moment, Jesus looks at Peter. And Matthew doesn't even need to offer this detail because he doesn't have to. The realization sets in. Peter remembered the words which Jesus had said before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter went and whipped, wept bitterly. He was so confident that he would never deny his Lord. And now he's done it three times. And so, of course, the biggest question is, why did Peter deny Jesus? Why would he do that? It doesn't seem like he needed to distance, distance himself from Jesus because he was in danger. No one was coming after the disciples. No one thought, we need to take down the disciples too. Their only goal was Jesus. And even after Peter, Peter cut off an ear of one of them in Gethsemane in the garden, there wasn't any punishment or any repercussions. So it didn't really seem like anyone was after Peter. But he clearly understood that there was this hostile environment that these people wanted to get Jesus, and whether he just sensed his own danger or he just didn't want to take any risk, he denied any connection with Jesus. The rooster crowed, crowed, and Jesus knew. So let's just sit in this for a minute. A disciple, a sincere and devout follower of Jesus, we're in the week leading up to the death of Jesus, We know his resurrection is coming, but first we just have this ability to just sit in this, to kind of sit in recognizing the sin in our own lives, the sin which would nail Jesus to the cross. All four gospel accounts include this story of Peter denying Jesus, and so it begs the question, why did they include it? (laughs) Peter was a key and primary disciple. He was a big player in Jesus's ministry, and so why would you include this fall from grace? Why show weakness of this disciple? Why not just gloss over it? (laughs) But we know by including it, it allowed followers of Jesus, both the early church who would be following Peter, as well as generations and generations to come, to know that Peter was a sinner just like the rest of us. 
And with Peter's tears came grief and repentance. Leon Morris said, we should understand Peter's tears as an expression of grief and repentance. By the following Sunday, he was back with the followers of Jesus. It was his loyalty to Jesus, not his temporary repudiation of his leader, that showed the real Peter. We see a Peter who sincerely messed up, but also a Peter whose story does not end with this denial. In the book of John, we learn more about Peter's reputation and his redemption after this moment. Now, we're not studying the book of John, but I think that it is necessary to bring up what happened to Peter after these denials. So, Peter denies Jesus. The story continues. Jesus is crucified. And then after the empty tomb, John tells more stories of what happened to Jesus after his resurrection, his different interactions with disciples and people. So stories like Jesus showing his pierced side and his nail-scarred hands to the disciples. And one of these interactions is Jesus eating breakfast with his disciples. And he turns to Peter and says, one, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, tend my lambs. Two, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep. Three, Peter, do you love me? And at this point, Peter's grieved because he's already said it. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus says, tend my sheep. Three times Peter denied Jesus. But now, three times, Peter commits himself to Jesus. Jesus is reinstating Peter for ministry here. For the three times that Peter failed, Jesus redeemed. And every time that Peter states that he loves Jesus, Jesus affirms his plan for Peter. And his plan for Peter is to shepherd God's people. Jesus has always had a great plan for Peter's life. In Matthew 16, Jesus is talking with Peter and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, and you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now this is a play on words because Peter's name in the translation is Petra, which means rock. So when he says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, the rock that he is going to build the church upon is both the declaration of Peter's, which is you are the Messiah, and upon Peter himself. Peter is gonna be a foundation for the church as we move into the early church in Acts. As the church just explodes, Peter is a key player in this ministry. And so God's plan for Peter to build his church, to pastor his sheep and lead this early church. God's not done with Peter. Peter's denials did not leave him in his sin, but Peter was redeemed and restored. And isn't our God like that? Always working to redeem and restore his people. A quote from Cornelius Plantinga Jr. says, to speak of sin by itself, to speak of it apart from the realities of creation and grace is to forget the resolve of God. God wants shalom and will pay back any price to get it back. Human sin is stubborn, but not as stubborn as the grace of God and not half so persistent, not half so ready to suffer to win its way. 
To concentrate on our rebellion, defection, and folly is to forget that the center of the Christian religion is not our sin, but our Savior. To speak of sin without grace is to minimize the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, and the hope of shalom. I love that line about focusing, that the center of Christian religion is not focusing on sin, but on our Savior. What great relief there is in knowing that grace just washes over us every single time. All right, our final passage of the night. How are we doing? We've gone through two, two big chunks of scripture. Our final passage, Judas. And if you know the story, once again, it does not end well. <laughs> All right, in chapter 27, verses 1 and 2. Now when the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. So they've now had their trial. They're like, he's guilty. Absolutely. Now let's take him to Pilate. So this is the Jews, right, that we've talked about. They're ready for the Romans to lay down the hammer and to say, yes, crucify him. It is odd that it's noted that they bound him We've seen in this passage, Jesus has not resisted once. There would be no reason to bound him. Um, but, of course, uh, none of this has made sense. None of it has been a worthy trial of any reason. So, he's in the custody of the Romans. Whatever the Romans decide to do is what would happen to him. And Jesus predicted that this very thing would happen. We studied it. Matthew chapter 20. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. We're watching it play out. Verse 3. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, that Judas, or sorry, that Jesus had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying, in, betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. So he's like, I've made a mistake. What have I done? Take the silver back. And they're like, we're not taking that back. So he throws it into the temple, and he goes away, and he hangs himself. The chief priests took the silver and said, well, it's not lawful to put them, put these, you know, these pieces of silver into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together, and with the money, they bought Potter's Field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet, was fulfilled, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. So we have this betrayal of Jesus from Peter, who was this close friend, and now we just have this remorse of Judas. He realized his decision to be betray Jesus was not worth it. He betrayed innocent blood. Judas realized this man is innocent. And he hadn't even seen the Roman decision yet, which I think is interesting. Jesus hadn't even been crucified. 
but it was enough of what had happened, this Jewish decision of him saying he was guilty, Judas knew. Yeah, I think he's gonna die, I think he's gonna be crucified. And so he kills himself. And this is just a remarkably dark point in the story. These coins that were used uh, that, G- that Judas had given back to them, you know, the chief priests, they wouldn't take it. They're like, no, 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 we don't want your coins. We don't want these back. This is, this is dirty, dirty money. This is blood money. And I just think it's ironic that to the chief priests, it was not a crime for them to use the money to pay Judas to commit this horrendous act, but it is a crime for them to dirty their holy temple with this blood money. So it just goes to show even more that these people were just whitewashed tombs, only concerned with how they are seen on the outside, but on the inside, just full of ruin and death. So they used the coins to buy this field, which is now called the field of blood for foreigners to be buried in. And Matthew connects these passages to actually both Zechariah and Jeremiah, which I think just goes to show that Matthew wants you to know that all the way down to the field that was purchased with the money that Judas received for betraying Jesus, that even those things happened in fulfillment of prophecy. So we can contrast Peter and Judas here. We see repentance in Peter, and we only see remorse in Judas. Peter was moved to genuine repentance, which led to his life changing, but Judas was just so remorseful and only guilty that he continued in sin and taking his own life. So let's take a step back between these three passages. Our trial, the Jews who will do anything to take down Jesus, offensive and wrongful attempts to claim that Jesus was wrong, Peter, the denial of Jesus, the betrayal of one of Jesus' best friends, the sin of a leader who had great purpose and much potential in Jesus' ministry, but at this point had not yet been restored to ministry, and then Judas, just the guilt of a terrible act. There's just these series of betrayals which led Jesus to the cross. Judas, the religious leaders, Peter, soon-to-be Pilate, the Roman governor, who was to blame? Who was it that put Jesus on the cross? Well, despite our own sinful actions, we know that Jesus had a plan. In John 10, Jesus says, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Octavius Winslow, who's a preacher from the 1800s, long time ago, kind of summarized these passages in this question, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. John Stott, similarly on this topic, in his book, The Cross of Christ, discusses this tension as well. He says, on the human level, Judas gave him up to the priests who gave him up to Pilate, who gave him up to the soldiers who crucified him. But on the divine level, the Father gave him up, and he gave himself up to die for us. As we face the cross, then, we can say to ourselves both, I did it, my sin sent him there, and he did it, his love took him there. The horrific and beautiful part of the story 
is knowing that it all had to happen. This was the way that Jesus chose his redemptive plan. This was the way that Jesus chose to fix the problem of sin in our world. This was the way Jesus chose to draw his broken people back to himself through persecution, rejection, and betrayal. And yet, also, through love, humility, and sacrifice. So on this Palm Sunday, knowing that we will remember Jesus' crucifixion on Friday and celebrate his resurrection on Sunday, we first recognize the weight of what led up to his death. We see glimmers of ourselves and the betrayals and mistakes of others. We recognize, too, that we are not exempt from the temptation of sin. So we reflect this week on the tension that my own sin sent Jesus to the cross. But at the same time, he went willingly. It was his purpose all along because of his great love for us. Not only did he die to pay the penalty for sin, but through his resurrection, we are brought from death to life and to freedom. Would you pray pray with me? Lord, we are humbled as we feel the weight of these passages and recognize the brokenness that happened, the injustices that happened against you, Jesus. We mourn as we can see some of ourselves in these stories. And so, Father, I just ask that you would give us humble and repentant hearts that we would be willing to see the sin in our own lives and understand the weight of the cross. That, Father, we can repent from what was and then move forward to what we know is true, your goodness, your victory, your love, your grace, all of these things available to us. That while we can focus and remember and feel the weight of our sin, what beauty it is that we get to take those chains off and walk in victory and in freedom because we are no longer bound by that sin. So it is with this truth, Lord, in humility with the grace you have offered us that we sing, that we proclaim truth, that we proclaim victory, and that we move forward into this world with your love. In your name, amen.